From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. The big melt begins in California and elsewhere. Sun-melting snowpack. Women being heard at the Bishop's Synod. American teams prepare to compete in a medieval battle contest. And Ron Schoolboy Teasley, 96 years old and a former Negro League player who batted against the great Satchel Paige. The first time I faced him, I hit a triple. Oh! You hit a triple off Satchel Paige? Not many people can Yeah, right. Well, I, I did. And he was quite a showman. Whenever he arrived at the park, everybody's attention was centered on him. And now family of some old stars are trying to organize an annual tribute to the league they loved. First, we have our newscast. It's Saturday, April 29, 2023. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. Police in Texas are in the middle of a manhunt. They're looking for a suspect in a mass shooting at a home in the small town of Cleveland. The San Jacinto County Sheriff's Office says five people are confirmed dead, including an eight-year-old child. Officials say there are three additional victims there. Conditions are not clear. ABC News is reporting the suspect is armed with an AR-15-style rifle and is intoxicated. Court hearings were held this week for all six suspects in the mass shooting in Dadeville, Alabama. The shooting happened at a birthday party two weeks ago. Four people were killed and dozens injured. Troy Public Radio's Kyle Gassett reports on the final funeral set for later today. Kiki Nicole Smith had plans to become a neonatal nurse and was ready to start her studies at the University of Alabama at Birmingham in the fall. Now, after her death, relatives will gather to remember the high school senior who played volleyball and managed the track team at Dadeville High School. Smith and three other victims were killed when gunfire erupted at a Sweet 16 birthday party earlier this month. All six suspects arrested in connection with the shooting have been charged with four counts of reckless murder and were denied bail. Police say nearly 90 shell casings were gathered at the scene and that 60 people were at the party when the shooting began. For NPR News, I'm Kyle Gassett in Troy, Alabama. Stocks ended the week and the month higher as companies continue to report earnings for the first three months of the year. NPR's Dave Figueroa reports Wall Street's focus is now shifting to the Federal Reserve's upcoming meeting and comments from Fed Chair Jerome Powell on Wednesday. The broad-based S&P 500 gained 1.5 percent in April and the tech-heavy Nasdaq 1.3 percent. It was a busy week for tech earnings. Meta, Facebook's parent company, did better than Wall Street expected, and investors cheered its forecast. When Federal Reserve policymakers meet, they'll have fresh data on economic growth, which was slower in March than economists forecasted. Year-over-year, GDP was up 1.1 percent. The Fed will also have new inflation data. For now, the future of California-based First Republic Bank remains uncertain after a volatile week of trading. Its share price is down 97 percent year-to-date. David Gura, NPR News, New York. A day after the Federal Reserve released an internal review taking on at least some of the blame for the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank, regulators are concerned about First Republic. It's based in San Francisco. Earlier this week, First Republic said its deposits have slumped by more than $100 billion in the first quarter. Montana has joined more than a dozen states banning transgender minors from receiving gender-affirming care. The Republican governor has signed the bill. It is expected, though, to face legal challenges. And from Washington, you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. 
The Dighton airman accused of leaking classified documents likely got a boost from his top-secret clearance when applying for a gun permit. WBUR's LHR Manning reports that Jack Teixeira was denied permits twice before Dighton police granted him one in 2020. Court records show Teixeira got in trouble as a high school sophomore for talking about guns and making racial threats. That came to haunt him when he first applied for a gun permit. Later, he was approved after citing his top-secret clearance and service in the Air National Guard. Lemonster Police Chief Aaron Kennedy says he probably would have made the same call. He turns his life around to become uh, in the military. He has top-secret clearance. I mean, that's kind of impressive. So you would hope that the military was doing their homework on him. Prosecutors say Teixeira used that top secret clearance to share government documents and cause the biggest intelligence leak in years. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Allie Jarmani. The Massachusetts Commission on LGBTQ Youth is pushing for new laws in Massachusetts to protect the LGBTQ community. Leslie Braxton Campbell is with the commission and says anti-LGBTQ incidents are on the rise nationally and the state is not immune. There have been anti-LGBTQ initiatives like in Massachusetts and certain bills that have been introduced that would actually like harm our children. Among the changes the commission wants, calling for Mass Health to alter its policies to allow more transgender youth to receive gender-affirming health services. The commission also wants passage of a bill that would allow people to revise birth certificates with a non-binary designation. On the MBTA, redline passengers should prepare for disruptions this weekend. Shuttle buses are replacing trains between the JFK UMass and Kendall MIT stations today and tomorrow. The closure allows crews to replace tracks so trains can eventually travel at higher speeds. Last night, the Bruins lost to the Panthers 7-5, so with the playoff series tied at three games each, a decisive Game 7 is set for tomorrow night at the Garden. At Fenway last night, the Red Sox lost to the Guardians 5-2. They meet again this afternoon. 50 degrees in Boston, highs in the mid-50s today. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Annie E. Casey Foundation, publishers of the Kids Count Data Book, providing data on the well-being of children, youth, and families. Available at aecf.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon, and thanks for being with us today. The North Carolina Supreme Court yesterday overruled one of its own previous decisions that had struck down the state's Republican-drawn voting maps. The vote found that the claims of gerrymandering are political and therefore can't be resolved by courts. The decision also dismisses the underlying lawsuit, meaning that the fight over election laws now before the U.S. Supreme Court could fizzle. NPR senior editor and Washington correspondent Ron Elbing joins us. Ron, thanks so much for being with us. Good to be with you, Scott. And what are the implications of this decision, uh, especially for groups who are trying to uh, go to state courts? Voting rights groups have had some success in some states challenging the really egregious gerrymanders. That's the kind where one party gets half the vote but draws the map to get a supermajority of the seats. Now, state courts have at times stepped in to correct these extreme imbalances. That happened in North Carolina last year. The state Supreme Court struck down that Republican gerrymander you referred to. But Republicans have now taken back control of that court and promptly reversed that ruling. That has the effect of preserving the Republican gerrymander in just that one state. But there is a twist here, as you mentioned already. The previous year's ruling had been awaiting review by the U.S. Supreme Court. 
And some legal observers thought the U.S. Supremes just might use that case to issue a broad ruling that could empower state legislators to make far-reaching, even radical changes in the way we elect the president and the Congress. And Scott, we should, we should note that all this comes just as the court faces more pressure on abortion and as it's enmeshed in an ethics controversy of its own. Recent revelations of undisclosed gifts to Justice Clarence Thomas have really caused approval of the court to plummet. Uh, but it's also about the court's longstanding lack of an ethics code. A set of rules like those applied to other federal judges and federal employees generally. And this past week, Chief Justice John Roberts flatly refused an invitation to a Senate committee hearing to discuss the issue of an ethics code. Speaker McCarthy managed to get a debt ceiling bill passed. Necessary victory for him, wasn't it? Yes, absolutely. It was his finest hour as Speaker, at least to date. And had he failed, it might have been the end of his hours as Speaker. And like most of McCarthy's wins, this one went right down to the wire. Here he is on Wednesday speaking to reporters, flush with victory right after the vote, 217 to 215. The president can no longer ignore by not negotiating. Senator Schumer, if he thinks he's got a plan, put it on the floor. See if you can pass it. And then we can go to conference. And that was all it was about. McCarthy needed to show he's earned a seat at the table with the Senate and with the president. It is not to say that the cuts in his budget are popular. They are not. But now he's at the table. Ron, uh, Florida's governor, uh, DeSantis, all over the news this week, uh, being sued by Disney. He's traveling to the U.K., Japan, South Korea, Israel. He's been accused by a former Guantanamo detainee of witnessing his torture. But where is Governor DeSantis in terms of potentially posing any kind of real challenge to Donald Trump for the Republican Party's nomination? We can say this much. The bloom is off of DeSantis's big re-election win last fall. Since then, it's been one negative story after another. You mentioned feuding with Disney, uh, then signing a near-total abortion ban in the dark of night. Uh, now he's losing his cool with reporters who ask a legitimate question about his time in the Navy when he was a lawyer monitoring the interrogation of prisoners at Guantanamo. DeSantis is not a threat right now to take the nomination away from Donald Trump. Trump's got a big lead on, on him in polls of Republicans. And the only Republican probably who's ever going to beat Donald Trump among Republicans is Trump himself. He has to lose that grip he's got on being the party's champion, its identity. And what could make that happen if nothing has so far? Maybe the pileup of charges and trials. Right now he's on trial in New York in a civil case about rape and defamation. Uh, there's the Georgia case from the 2020 election aftermath, the Mar-a-Lago documents. And Scott, the big one, the January 6th case, the riot at the Capitol, and the overturning of the election, the effort to overturn the election that day. Uh, this week, former Vice President Mike Pence testified before a grand jury in that case for most of a day. He said he was planning to tell the truth and follow the law. That could be the worst news yet for Pence's former boss. NPR's Ron Elving, thanks so much. Thank you, Scott. Winter snow is starting to melt in the west and the midwest. The upper Mississippi River has already reached major flood stage, and in California, there are worries about hot weather and the massive snowpack in the Sierra Nevadas. Joshua Yeager of KVPR joins us now from Bakersfield, California. Josh, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks, Scott. How does it look this weekend? Well, a lot of snow is going to melt. That's the short answer. 
Yosemite National Park is closed through Wednesday due to flood concerns. And the world's largest tree in Sequoia National Park will be off limits through summer after all the damage winter storms did. And that's a big deal, not only for the park, but for the communities that rely on tourism here. In the San Joaquin Valley where I am, the snowpack broke all-time records this year. In some spots, there were four times more snow than average. And today, the high here on the valley floor is pushing triple digits. Up in the mountains where all that snow is, temperatures will be 60 degrees. More concerningly, lows up there will stay above freezing. And that means even more snow melt? Exactly. But the good news is dam managers here have been shooting torrents of water out of reservoirs to make room for the coming snowmelt. So things are expected to be good for this weekend at least. But this heat wave is only the first chip in the snowpack's armor. We have at least four more months of warm weather ahead of us. You've been out in the area. What do you see? Well, it's hard to overstate just how different the landscape looks. Eight months ago, this region was experiencing severe drought. Now there's a sprawling lake. Thousands of acres of farmland are underwater. The water stretches out like an ocean as far as the eye can see. Only the occasional power pole or farm building kind of pokes out. I mean, there's literal waves lapping at the dirt. Seagulls are chirping. People are even going boating. Um, towns near the formerly dry lake, Tulare Lake, are in a mad dash to set up sandbags, shore up levees, and protect themselves from the encroaching water. But time is running out. That lake is only getting bigger. And how are the people who live there coping? I've spent some time in the small town of Corcoran between LA and San Francisco. About 22,000 people live there, along with a whole lot of orchards and row crops. There's a 14 mile long levee that protects the town. And it's the only thing that separates Corcoran from Tulare Lake. Crews are working frantically to raise it but the town is understandably on edge. People can look up and see those beautiful snow-capped mountains, um, but with the pit in their stomachs. I met Lucia Solis outside City Hall. There was some music coming over the PA. She's lived in Corcoran for 30 years, but she's prepared to jump in her car and go. Well, you know what, we got some things ready, like important documents I keep in my trunk, you know, in case we have to do that. I have to, I make sure that my tank is full, you know, and and just wait, you know, wait and pray. And there's another big weather turnaround coming. More snow could happen in the Sierra in May, and that means we could potentially see even more flooding. Joshua Yeager of KVPR, thanks so much. Thank you. I spent a couple of years of my childhood living with my cousins and the voice of Harry Belafonte. So it seemed. We had one side or the other of his two-record album, Belafonte, at Carnegie Hall, playing before we went to school, while we raided the refrigerator after school, and then before bedtime. We'd get up in the morning and sing Deo, the refrain from his famous song inspired by Jamaican banana boat workers. As a child, Harry Belafonte had gone back and forth between Kingston and Harlem. Looking at it today, it may seem inauthentic for our Spanish-Jewish-Irish Catholic family to belt out lines from Jamaican folk songs, but Harry Belafonte took us on a kind of world tour on that Carnegie Hall album from Jamaica to Ireland, the American South, the Holy Land, Mexico, Haiti, and back again. I learned both Danny Boy and Havana Gila from listening to Belafonte at Carnegie Hall. 
I told him that the one time we met at a concert in Havana, and he laughed and said, Havana Gila means let us rejoice. It's Jamaican in spirit. The album sold more than half a million copies after it was released in 1959. It stayed on the charts for over three years and remained in production until RCA stopped pressing LPs. But I did not learn until reading about Harry Belafonte's extraordinary life when he died this week at the blessed age of 96 that the two nights of recordings at Carnegie Hall began as a favor to Eleanor Roosevelt to raise money for a school serving what were then called troubled or wayward boys. Harry Belafonte's humanitarianism was not just a part of an act. He was close to Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., helped organize the 1963 March on Washington and demonstrated against apartheid in South Africa. He supported protesters and activists in the most direct and personal ways, posting bail and helping with rent. He told NPR in 2011 how his mother had told him, don't ever let injustice go unchallenged. Because of her, he said, I was long an activist before I became an artist. This week I found myself going back to his Carnegie Hall album, Songs from the Whole of Humanity, given elegant voice, graced by Harry Belafonte's gentle rasp that seemed to speak of love and longing and glimpses of a better world in the distance. Down the way where the nights are gay and the sun shines daily on the mountain top. I took a trip on a sailing ship and when I reached Jamaica, I made a stop. But I'm sad to say I'm on my way. Won't be back for many a day. My heart is down. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about five minutes, you'll hear that Pope Francis says women will be allowed to vote on a Vatican panel that had been exclusively male. And keep in mind, wherever you are, you can check in with WBUR with the new WBUR app. Tap and listen when and how you want. Download it or update it in your app store now. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, helping those affected by crises around the world by partnering with customers to provide crucial supplies to those in need. OceanStateJobLot.com. BMW. The BMW i4 has a range of up to 301 miles. It's 100% electric and 100% BMW. And Zoo New England. Zoo what makes you happy. Discover incredible wildlife and learn about nature at Boston's Franklin Park Zoo and Stone Zoo in Stoneham. ZooNewEngland.org. I'm Giles Snyder with these headlines. Police in Texas are engaged in a manhunt. They're looking for the suspect in a mass shooting. The San Jacinto County Sheriff's Office says five people are dead, including an eight-year-old child. A string of deadly accidents has led the U.S. Army to ground its aviation units. All Army aviators will be temporarily grounded sometime next week for required safety training, except for those participating in critical missions. The latest crash happened in Alaska on Thursday when two Apache helicopters collided, killing three people. And Montana has joined more than a dozen states that are banning transgender minors from receiving gender-affirming care. The Republican governor has signed the bill. It's expected to face legal challenges. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from Indeed, committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates. Businesses can invite candidates to apply, then schedule and conduct virtual interviews all in one place. Indeed.com slash NPR. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Political instability continues in Venezuela. Neighboring Colombia hosted an international summit earlier this week aimed at restoring democracy in Venezuela, but got off to a rough start when the country's most prominent opposition leader, who'd planned to attend, was forced to leave Colombia. Reporter John Otis has been following the story and joins us now from Bogota, Colombia. John, thanks for being with us. Good morning, Scott. So I gather almost as soon as Juan Guaido, the Venezuelan opposition leader, landed, he was put on a plane. Yeah, it was really bizarre. Guaido, as you may recall, was until recently considered by about 50 countries as Venezuela's legitimate head of state. That was because uh, President Nicolás Maduro has turned into a dictator and basically destroyed Venezuela's democracy. But efforts to remove Maduro have failed. And in the meantime, Guaido has lost a lot of his initial support. He's also been banned from leaving Venezuela, but he wanted to make a splash at the Colombia conference, so he crossed the border on foot. That took Colombia by surprise. The president here, Gustavo Petro, is a leftist who wants to improve relations with the Maduro regime and uh, has always dismissed Guaido as a bit of a fraud. Uh, in fact, Guaido was not invited to the conference, and his sneaking into Colombia gave the Petro government the excuse to escort him to the airport and, and uh, for a flight to Miami. So I, did that blow up the summit meeting? Uh, pretty much, but you know, uh, Colombia had to try something uh, because there's a lot riding on Venezuela uh, getting back to normal. Uh, government corruption and Maduro's uh, mishandling of the economy have led to food shortages and massive poverty. That's prompted more than 7 million Venezuelans to flee the country, and about 2.5 million have settled uh, here in Colombia, and that's put a huge strain on the country's social services. Uh, and so Colombian President Petro is trying to take a bigger role in uh, searching for a solution. Uh, he invited delegates from the U.S. and 19 other countries to Bogota for a one-day conference. But it was pretty badly organized, and the truth is nothing much came out of it. Are there also ongoing talks in Mexico? Yeah, that's, that's right. Negotiations uh, between Maduro and the political opposition have been going on for the past two years in Mexico City. Uh, the opposition is trying to convince Maduro to hold a free and fair presidential election next year. Now, should that happen, the U.S. has said it would lift sanctions on Venezuela's uh, vital oil industry. But, you know, the talks keep getting stalled, and, and so far, you know, there's just been very little progress. How do we, uh, how do we put a handle on, on how the crisis in Venezuela has affected people who decided to leave, uh, many of them trying to get into the U.S.? Yeah, that's correct. And, and a big problem is that many of these Venezuelans on their way north are opting for the very dangerous land route across the, the Darien jungle. Uh, I've been up there. It's a remote roadless region separating Colombia from Panama. Uh, hundreds of migrants have been lost in the rainforest. Some have been raped and robbed and others have been killed by bandits. 
And so um, earlier this week, the Biden administration announced new measures to try to stop this flow. Uh, first, they've announced a 60-day so-called surge campaign uh, to try to stop human smuggling through the Darien jungle. Uh, they're also setting up uh, migrant processing centers in Colombia and Guatemala. And finally, the U.S. says it's going to double the number of migrants it will accept from Venezuela and other Western Hemisphere nations. Reporter John Otis in Bogota, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Pope Francis is inviting women to add their voices to the Synod of Bishops. That does not mean he is allowing women to be bishops or priests, but it is still a move that groups like the Women's Ordination Conference have been calling for. Kate McElwee is the conference's director, and she joins us now. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. The Synod of Bishops, of course, advises uh, the pontiff on various issues. How many women will, will now be included, and who are they? Pope Francis has restructured how the church makes decisions, and he has called for 70 non-bishop members to participate in an upcoming meeting in Rome this October. So he's suggested that half of those 70 be women and that they be able to, to vote alongside men in the room. And any idea who those women will be? Not yet. I think uh, each of the seven continents is uh, advised to suggest 10, 10 candidates to who will join the meeting in Rome. So we'll see. I think that process is underway now. How do you, how do you think the presence of um, women in the room might change the liberations? You know, I think it's extremely important that women are not just in the room, but have a vote and a voice. And particularly at this meeting, um, this synod in October is a time when the church will be confronting some of the most urgent issues, such as women in ministry, LGBTQ rights, climate change. And so having women and people who have experienced uh, marginalization or just have a diverse perspective, I think having them in the room as equals is incredibly important uh, for the church to consider. Yeah. Less than a year ago, you and some of your members were detained at the Vatican for protesting a, a meeting of cardinals. Yes. And <laughs> uh, in, in just in August, I was actually detained at the Vatican for protesting against a meeting of cardinals, which is, of course, only men. And again, this was a meeting where men were discussing the future of the church without any women present. And so seven of us held red paper parasols with messages like it's raining men or ordained women. And then we were detained for four hours um, at, by Vatican police. Mm -hmm. Do you think you had an impact? I think so. I think the overreach of the Vatican police uh, and the media coverage that followed really got our call out there. I think it's really uh, an injustice and, and something that people recognize as wrong that only men are meeting behind closed doors to talk about the future of the church, which of course includes women. <laughs> um, and so I think, I think we do make an impact. I believe in public witness and advocacy and we see the success of that, particularly with the voting rights for Catholic women. Um, in 2018, we organized a witness outside of the Vatican calling for voting rights for women. We were harassed by police. I was manhandled and nearly arrested. And um, that really changed the agenda. It, we launched a petition quickly after, um, but the media and soon bishops and members of the synod were talking about this issue 
became so mainstream that just a few years later, and, and really just a few years in Catholic years, uh, women are able to, to vote at these meetings. So something that was so taboo and, and kind of controversial just a few years ago is now we see that change, that paradigm shift in the Catholic Church. Well, may I ask, uh, why, why are you still a Catholic? The Catholic Church is my spiritual home. Um, it's where I've, you know, I experience a lot of joy and community, and you know, I think it's it's where I can have an impact. I, I, it, it's my it's my place, and you know, I'm just getting started and working for gender equality in the Catholic Church, and so I think this is a it's an important um, place to be, and it's where I find my my spiritual strength and and support. Mm -hmm. Pope Francis says that that there are important positions that women can play in the church that 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 don't require ordination. I wonder how you feel about that. Yeah, Pope Francis has made significant moves to separate management from ministry in the Catholic Church, and so he has appointed women to positions that women have never held before in the Catholic Church. And through an updated constitution for the Vatican, he has opened almost all positions um, that were formerly reserved for cardinals, for instance, now any lay person can serve in those positions. So it's extremely important that women, you know, start to rise through the ranks of the Vatican in managerial positions, but there's still a, a gap for women in ministry. And so while that door is closed, we know so far, we know that it's on the hearts and minds of Catholics around the world. Kate McElwee of the Women's Ordination Conference, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. The U.S. has more banks than any other country, over 4,000. They have shaped the country's economy, and as recent bank failures show, also pose some risks, but small community banks play an important role in rural areas and keeping local businesses afloat. When you get to know someone and you learn their character um, and you can look them in the eye and have those sometimes difficult conversations or very positive conversations, that just goes a long way. That's story tomorrow on Weekend Edition Sunday with Aisha. You can tell your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. Two medieval armored combat world championships are happening this weekend in Europe. You know, if they need theme music, B.J. Liederman writes ours. Hundreds of people are fighting in full armor with swords, shields, and other implements of historical mayhem. Among those competing are several members of a team from Colorado, the Wardens. Shauna Lewis with member station KRCC in Colorado Springs has this report on their training and preparations. The sound of sword strikes echoes through the towering pine trees in Black Forest, just north of Colorado Springs. This is not choreographed reenactment or costume performance. It's the real thing, though the weapons are not sharp. Just got beat into the ground and threw some people around. I just, I loved it. I, I couldn't wipe a smile off my face, no matter what happened to me. That's Colorado Warden Jeff Lexa talking about the first time he fought in armor. We're doing this for sport, as they did back then. That's the historical root of this, to replicate combat, but not to actually kill each other. Lexa says his armor, called a kit, is based on a style from the early 16th century and weighs close to 100 pounds. He uses it when he competes in team melees. 
That's when as many as 300 armored combatants take the field to battle it out. There are also one-on-one -on -one duels, a specialty for national champion Shoshana Shellens. Her black and steel gray kit weighs about 45 pounds, which she says allows for better mobility and visibility. Everything fits into the bag, a bit like Tetris. I'm removing my greaves, which are the shin protection, and my quisses, which are the thigh and knee protection. These are made of steel, while my brigandine chest armor is actually made with titanium. My helmet is a German clap visor. There's also some modern gel padding that goes under some of that armor. This keeps the armor from abusing me when the armor is hit against me. The kit has to meet authenticity standards for competition set by governing bodies. Most of them buy their gear from professional armorers. It can cost around $2,000, and that's just a starting point. But some, like Ian Webb, prefer to make part or all of their kits themselves. Because I'm a big guy, I recognize that I'm going to be a very large target, so I wanted a kit that's going to protect me in any case whatsoever. At six foot seven, 300 pounds, Webb often fights using a poleaxe, which is a long shafted staff topped with an axe head. He and others practice using a stationary target called a pell, in this case, a stack of tires. Webb and fellow warden Travis Tuning describe what it's like inside a suit of armor during a melee. It's all really muffled. You're hearing dum, dum, dum. You hear your own heartbeat. Feel your own breath. You're just so focused on what you're doing, the pains that you feel when somebody strikes you, the exhaustion in your lungs. You're breathing in the smell of the dirt, the sweat, and like you have all the metal and leather in your nose. All you hear is these other dudes clanking around you. And you get this huge rush of excitement and happiness and like adrenaline. Tuning calls it armored mixed martial arts. I do the nerdiest version of MMA that you could possibly imagine, and it's awesome. It is a sport that combines nerd and jock. Some people come to it because they grew up fighting imaginary dragons with broomstick swords and trash can lids for shields, or because they're interested in history or it keeps them fit and strong. Members of the Colorado Wardens say what keeps them going is the camaraderie and support they share with each other. Shellens is competing in the women's sword and shield events in Europe this week, while Webb and Lexa qualified to join other U.S. fighters in various team melees. For NPR News, I'm Shauna Lewis. Have fun storming the fort. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Protests over raising the age of retirement continue in France. Things have gotten loud. This week, protesters all over the country have revived a traditional form of protest known as the casseroleade, or pots and pans protest. It's all to show discontent over President Macron raising the retirement age from 62 to 64. More protests are expected on May 1st, France's Labor Day. NPR Stacey Vanek-Smith has the story. In the latest act of protest against the raising of the retirement age, 
French protesters got loud. From Paris to Marseille to Strasbourg, protesters gathered in public squares by the thousands, banging pots and pans together, chanting, waving flags. Bernard Salinier is an economist at Columbia. He grew up in France. Ever since I was a kid, oh. I've heard people talk about, oh, when I retire, they will do this and that. Like, life actually is starting when you retire. Life starts when you retire, when you finally get to take from the economy you've been giving to for decades. And France puts its money where its mouth is. About 15 percent of the country's economic output goes to paying for pension benefits to retired people. That is almost the highest in the world. The U.S., by contrast, devotes about 7 percent of economic output to retirees. The French are considering that this right to retire early is part of their culture. That's how they want to live their life. And that is being taken away from them. President Emmanuel Macron says raising the age of retirement is necessary. After all, France's pensions will be $2 billion in the red by the end of the year and $10 billion in the red by 2025. He says the reform is needed to make France's economy more dynamic. But that is part of the problem, says Meher Takaya with CFDT, one of France's main unions. The relation with work is changing. The relation with work is changing. Takaya says these last few weeks have been taking a stand against work encroaching on more and more of life. Of course, as we were talking, I realized it was about 7 p.m. Paris time. Is now an okay time? Uh, yes, I'm in my office, so it's uh, fine. You're in your office still? That's quite late. No, we, we often finish late here. We often finish late here. Takaya says there is this misconception people have that the French don't want to work. But instead, he says the protests are against this idea that we all live to serve the economy, to make it grow, instead of the economy serving us, making our lives better. Economist Bernard Salinier says that idea is at the heart of why many protesters are calling for pensions to be funded by raising taxes on the wealthy, those for whom the economy is working quite well, instead of putting the burden on working class French people who are now being asked to sacrifice more of their lives to a system that's supporting them less and less. I mean, they dislike fat cats in general and think they should be paying a higher share. Salani says that's part of why, in previous weeks, protesters have stormed the French stock exchange and the headquarters of luxury good maker LVMH, which is run by Bernard Arnault, one of the richest people in the world. LVMH is an obvious target, a symbolic target. Salani says some kind of reform is needed for the pension system. After all, some of the only countries that pay out more of their country's wealth to retired people are Greece and Italy, both of which are in dire economic straits. But at the moment, Salonier says, people are just not really listening to each other. When asked to comment on the pots and pans protest, President Macron simply said, saucepans are not going to move France forward. Stacey Vanek-Smith, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The MBTA says it has pinpointed what went wrong with a crowded Green Line train during the Boston Marathon last week. The T says the floor of the trolley car buckled because the metal flooring of the car was misaligned. No one was hurt, but the issue did shut down service for around an hour. The T says it examined the whole fleet of trolleys of that type and found no indications of similar problems. 
Boston sports fans are ready to cheer on the Celtics in round two of the playoffs, starting Monday at the Garden against the Philadelphia 76ers. But the Bruins are still mired in round one. Last night, the Bees lost a chance to clinch when they lost to the Panthers 7-5. to And so, with that series tied at three games each, a decisive game seven is set for tomorrow night at the Garden. It's 50 degrees in Boston clouds today, a chance of showers mainly late in the day, highs in the mid-50s. WBUR supporters include Sunbug Solar, helping to grow renewable energy in Massachusetts since 2009. To learn about solar energy employment opportunities, visit sunbugsolar.com. Soaring Hawk Meditation Center, celebrating the present moment with a new exhibit on mindfulness located in Littleton, Mass. More at soaringhawkcenter.com. And A Street Frames, 42 years making frames for galleries, artists, and the public. Museum-quality framing and advice in Cambridge and Boston, astreetframes.com. On last week's Wait, Wait, Weird Al Yankovic talked about hiring actor Daniel Radcliffe to play him in a movie about his own life. The first time I saw Harry Potter, uh, I, I thought, you know, someday that guy's got to play me. <laughs> on Peter Sagal, this week we go to Nashville to ask country music legend Brad Paisley what child actor he hopes will grow up to play him. Join us for the news quiz from NPR. Today at 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Cunard, sailing the transatlantic crossing between New York and London on Queen Mary 2. With a commitment to White Star service, fine dining, and entertainment, cunard.com crossing. From Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org and from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Shy by Max Porter is a short, fierce novel that can be a rant, a rumination, a reveal, blank verse, and blunt talk. Shy, a troubled British teen in the mid-1990s, has been sent to the last chance boarding school and is loaded his rucksack in the middle of the night to break out of his dorm and escape the bunk beds, the therapy groups, and the counseling sessions. Let's ask Max Porter to read what runs through the mind of the character he's created. His heart is bump, bump, bumping like he's scared. Idiot drama with no audience, overthinking, overlapping voiceovers. We made such good progress today, Shy. I'm really delighted. He's sprayed, snorted, smoked, sworn, stolen, cut, punched, run, jumped, crashed an escort, smashed up a shop, trashed a house, broken a nose, stabbed his stepdad's finger. But it's been a while since he's crept. Stressful work. Psychologically disturbed juveniles requiring special educational treatment or a bunch of teenage criminals on a taxpayer-funded countryside retreat. Max Porter, author of Grief is a Thing with Feathers and other novels that have been translated into more than 30 languages, joins us now from Bath, England. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Hello. How did this character of Shy worm his way into your mind and heart? Well, he's there already because I'm raising three sons and I do a lot of mentoring with young people and I'm watching the way this country is working and what it's deciding to do with its vulnerable population and what it's deciding to do with inequality as a, as a pressing issue. 
But this specific boy rose up out of a kind of dream I'd had about a boy who was see-through, who was um, porous. Through him would pour the dead and the living as well as the human and the non-human, and I wondered how he would react to being an unhappy teenager in the so-called real world. And I was preoccupied with him in a medieval context and then in a Victorian context, and he, as a work in progress, he eventually landed himself in 1995, and I thought, yep, that'll do it. Well, help us understand the play of his mind as thoughts run through them, to use your words again, loping along in odd, repetitive chunks, running at him, stumbling. He's escaped this house, and, and the whole novel is a kind of nocturne that takes place over three hours as he makes his way to this pond and has a kind of mystical encounter there. But he's in a kind of weather system. He's being bombarded at all times by other people's sense of him, the judgment of his parents, their pleading, imploring desire for him to communicate better with them, the bullying of his peers. He has these kind of night terrors, these terrible flashbacks to his recent violent past, but also he is being haunted both by society and by literal ghosts in the building he lives in. He's sort of a centrifugal absence at the centre of the book. It, it's difficult to get at who he is because he is so cluttered by other people's conception of him. And I think, if anything, that's the most realistic aspect of this book, is that we only begin and end in other people's ideas of us. You made reference to his recent violent past. Uh, I mean, I inevitably said troubled teen, but to be fair, he's also caused a lot of trouble, hasn't he? Yeah, he's done things for which he has no vocabulary of apology or, or shame. That's one of the themes running through the book is how does he make sense of having done these things and was it even him that did him? He's got a sort of disembodied criminal self that appears to have done these things. Um, and that's based on, you know, conversations I've had with people that have done terrible things about the kind of workings of guilt as an emotional and a political and a legal framework. But yeah, he's not a wholly sympathetic character. He's made terrible mistakes. He begins to see himself like a scrub plant in the countryside. Yeah. That's one of the things also that he shares with his teachers is this sense of what is worth saving, what is a waste product, what is a weed and what is a plant and what's the difference and how does society value its weeds and value its flowers and could it be that one is hiding inside the other the whole time? Why is the novel set in the mid-1990s? One of the things I noticed is nobody can reach shy on his cell phone. <laughs> Maybe cowardice on my part because I'm raising teenagers and I, and I just see that the paradigm shift of mobile phones is so significant. Bullying has changed, flirting has changed, everything has changed uh, for young people. They, they live on these phones now um, and, I, and I don't feel expert enough to deal with a situation as complex as shy with the phones thrown in. But also I think some of the things I wanted to say about British politics and care and his obsession with drum and bass music would have felt more like I was essaying if I'd set them in the present. And actually, I like that little bit of distance. I'm interested in a historical novel that breaks the rules of the historical novel by kind of showing, not telling. Particularly as a teenage boy, you know, he, he, he's a bragger. He's, a, he's in a cultural tribe. It's all show for him. So I was, I was interested in, um, in that little bit of distance. Um, and also, you know, at the end of a long period of conservative government in the UK before a notional time of change and progressive energy and I wanted to slightly question whether those things were an illusion or what they actually meant to the people uh, on the receiving end of those benefits. You read the novel and do find yourself wondering, it kind of reopens of a whole examination we've been through over the past generation, when is a human being a child? When are they considered an adult? I mean, we, for legal reasons, I suppose, we set arbitrary numbers, but uh, it can be awfully unsatisfying, can't it? Well, wholly, especially in as much as 
what is deemed to be childlike. I mean, I can speak from experience. I, I, I'm a childlike person. I'm not a man-child. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not acting the fool or anything, but I cherish my childishness. I locate it in grief. I locate it in losing a parent as a child and retaining some thin-skinnedness, some craving for honesty, some craving for emotional enrichment, which is sometimes deemed to be of less value than financial or status-based progress in this life. But I also think that also Shai, if you look at Shai and his peers in that place, they're actually achieving phenomenally accomplished examination among themselves, kind of proto-sophisticated examinations of race and class and gender that is denied us in adult life. We, we simply stop talking about those things or we adopt a position in the cultural war and just scream at one another. Whereas they're like trees in the wood. They have a kind of nutrient base that they're sharing and they're, they're teasing out of one another in, I think, in like weirdly accomplished ways. Can I chance to ask you, how do you, how do you see Shai in 10 years or 30? The honest answer, if I'm, if I'm being unguarded, I want Shai to be in love. I want someone to have found him that makes him feel loved and for whom he can define himself in a mirror position to, that he can, as I was, as other people I know, have been saved by love, not necessarily of an individual, maybe of a job or a, or a pastime. You know, that's why I gave him this music, that his despair is always tethered, is, is organically connected to this unbelievable joy he feels at the music. So I see him running a little gardening company and being in love and maybe having children or not being able to have children or whatever, but just finding that, that actually someone sees him and loves him. Max Porter, his novel, Shy. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. During the decades in which professional baseball was segregated, there were the Negro Leagues and the so-called Major Leagues. I say so-called because was it really a Major League? Without major stars like Satchel Paige, Josh Gibson, Cool Papa Bell, Ray Dandridge, I could go on. Today, more than 75 years after Jackie Robinson broke that barrier when he signed with the Brooklyn Dodgers, some of the surviving players of the Negro Leagues Friends and family members have formed the Negro Leagues Family Alliance to keep alive the legacy of the Negro Leagues. We're joined now by Ron Schoolboy Teasley, a former Negro Leagues baseball player, and his daughter Lydia, both instrumental in forming the alliance. They join us now from Michigan. Thank you both very much for being with us. Glad to be with you. Thank you so much. And Lydia Teasley, let me begin with you if I could. Tell us about the uh, idea behind the Negro Leagues Family Alliance? The idea pretty much started from Sean Gibson, who was Josh Gibson's great-grandson, Satchel Paige's daughter, and I believe it was Buck Leonard's daughter, just kind of sat around and were putting things together, and they thought that maybe they could contact other families to get together and put together some initiatives to preserve the legacy of these great players and just to keep everybody educated and informed what a great legacy they have. Mr. Teasley, may I ask how old you are? I'm 96 years old. Boy, you sound good. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Appreciate it. Of course, you, you played semi-pro baseball in Michigan against Negro League teams. What are some of your memories? You, you're, correct, you're correct about that. I, when I was very young, 
I met some former Negro League players. They were working out on a field across from the recreation center where I, I attended. And pretty soon I started working out with them. And I was 12 or 13 years old. Oh, gosh. You might say they became my second parents because uh, I spent quite a bit of time with them. And they told me stories about the Negro League and how the travel was and how it was uh, a problem when you uh, with certain states was more of a problem than in other states. If they needed a player, a player did not show enough players did not show up. They would actually put me into the lineup. Oh my God. <laughs> Usually in right field. <laughs> and so uh, that, was, that was quite a thrill. And uh, I was able to hold my own. Luckily, not too many balls hit the right field. But then, uh... <laughs> <laughs> That's an old strategy. I'm sure you were great. I have to ask, did you ever bat against uh, Satchel Paige? Yes, I did. I, I, I was playing with a team in Detroit called the Detroit Wolves. And yeah. we played an exhibition game against uh, Satchel and his uh, another local team. But the first time I faced him, I hit a triple. Oh, you hit a triple off Satchel Page. Not many people can say yeah, that. Right. Well, I, I did. And uh, that was quite a thrill. And he was quite a showman. Whenever he arrived at the park, everybody's attention was centered on him. Oh, and a great showman. I, I have to ask, when Jackie Robinson was signed, and then in, in the years that followed, you know, other great black ball players, I'm thinking of Larry Doby, Monty Irvin, uh, Don Newcomb, Roy Campanella. What, what was the feeling among some Negro League players? Were they happy or was it a little bit mixed? They, they were mixed feeling because... Uh maybe morally and socially, it was uh, a good thing, but that put a lot of men out of work. Yeah, Like I said, they enjoyed the game so much and the idea of their best players being taken by the other league uh, was, 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 was troublesome to them. Yeah. You had a tryout with the Dodgers once, I'm told. Uh, yeah, I had a tryout. I was invited to come down to Vero Beach, Florida. And uh, at the end of the two weeks, Evidently, they were happy with our play, and so uh, we were signed. They, we were signed to play in Olean, New York, in the Pony League. And it was a wonderful, uh, you know, it was a wonderful city. I enjoyed it very much. The other player that was, that was named Sammy G. And both Sam and I were playing outstanding baseball, and uh, we played in twenty-three games. Although I had twenty-three hits in twenty-three games. And I was leading league in home runs as well. And uh, so they called us in one day and said, I'm sorry to report, uh, to tell you this, but we have, are bringing players down from a higher classification and we're going to have to release you. And uh, naturally that was rather devastating. And after that, came home and then we got a call from the, a gentleman who very instrumental in working with players and by the name of Will Robinson. So he arranged for us to go play with the uh, with the New York Cubans. The New York Cubans were one of the great Negro League teams, but but the Negro Leagues went out of business just a few years later. I have, that, that that was a sad thing. That's a sad thing. So like I say, it was I mean, morally and socially, it was was something to be considered, but it still put a lot of players out of work. It was uh, it made mixed emotions actually. Lydia Teasley, just last week, I'm told you, uh, the Negro Leagues Family Alliance, had a meeting with Major League Baseball. Yes. How did that go? What would you like to do? Uh, one of our main objectives is the Negro Leagues Day that we're hoping to get on May 2nd. 
And so that was one of the uh, main initiatives that was discussed. And they seemed very excited about that. And we want that to go through every major league team every May 2nd. It's almost like a Jackie Robinson day. And graciously, the Tigers are doing it this year and on a small scale. We are doing it this May 2nd. And why May 2nd? In 1920, the first uh, Negro League team played a game on May 2nd. So that's why it's symbolic to that day. What do you want fans of today to know about and appreciate about the Negro Leagues? Well, I think the Negro League had quite an effect on my life. When I uh, first started playing, I had no idea that I'd want to go. I'd go to want to go to college or or go in, you know, further my education. But uh, after being with the, around the players and and uh, who were really really family men, they set good examples. They uh, they just simply loved the game of baseball. Lydia Teasley, what do you hope people today will appreciate about the Negro Leagues? I think the main thing is just the, wow, just the courage that they had to step out on faith and form their own league and uh, just letting them know that you can do it too, that you can do it. You know, you can step out on faith. You can do what these amazing men did. You can carry on a legacy. And the main thing is just how great it is to play in a sport, the camaraderie that it brings, and, you know, just how much learning you get, sportsmanship, uh, patience, and everything that you get from being together on a team, that is a great thing that I think all children need to learn at an early age. Ron, schoolboy Teasley, former Negro League player, his daughter Lydia Teasley of the Negro League's Family Alliance. Thank you both very much for joining us. I, I feel better just talking to you. Thank you. Well, Scott, thank you so much for having us. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive. Progressive commercial insurance protects small businesses from retailers to tradespeople. Progressive covers a variety of business needs with a range of coverages. More at progressivecommercial.com. And from Hint, maker of fruit-infused water with no sugar or diet sweeteners. Available in more than 25 flavors, including watermelon and pineapple. In stores or delivered from hintwater.com. This is NPR. It's 50 degrees in Boston coming up on 9 o'clock. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. Catch Light Painting, committed to enhancing new and historic homes with a thoughtful approach to interior and exterior painting. More at CatchLightPainting.com. And Zoo New England. Zoo what makes you happy. Discover incredible wildlife and learn about nature at Boston's Franklin Park Zoo and Stone Zoo in Stoneham. ZooNewEngland.org. A Judy Bloom classic is finally coming to the big screen. Hey there, God. It's me, Margaret. I'm a little nervous, actually, about being alone, so 
Can you just not let anything really horrible happen? I'm Sarah McCammon, and we'll be talking to Abby Ryder Fordson about what it was like to play the title character in this iconic story of a girl's coming of age. That's on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 5 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. I'm reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. This hour, a record number of murders across the United States are going unsolved. Why? A report from Oakland. Another devastating Russian strike in Ukraine of an apartment building. The latest from the New York trial in which Donald Trump is accused of sexual assault. A new novel, Chain Gang All-Stars, a chilling view of the future or of now. And Matt Berninger, lead singer of The National, and how being a father helped lift his spirits in dark times. The truth is, being a dad was, throughout this phase, the one thing that, that was like, oh, you know, I'm good at that. That's what I'm really good at. First, our newscast at Saturday, April 29, 2023. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. In the small town of Cleveland, Texas, people are being asked to avoid the area of the nation's latest mass shooting. NPR's Amy Held reports five people are dead, including a child. Three are injured, and a suspect is at large. It began with a man firing his AR-style weapon into his front yard some 40 miles north of Houston. It was close to midnight, says San Jacinto County Sheriff Greg Capers. One of the victims came out of the house and said, hey, we have a a small baby that's trying to, to sleep, and the man said, I'll shoot out in my front yard, do what I want to in my own residence. By the time police arrived, four people were dead, several others in critical condition. An eight-year-old boy was flown to the trauma center. It was too late. He died, too. From the number one cause of death for children in the U.S., firearms. Capers says a SWAT team cleared nearby properties and determined the suspect had fled the county. A manhunt is underway. Amy Held, NPR News. The U.S. and Canada have taken steps toward combating gun violence. Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas and his Canadian counterpart have signed four agreements, including one meant to stop the smuggling of handguns. We agreed to expand intelligence sharing to support interdictions and swift law enforcement action. Mayorkas spoke in Ottawa at a crime forum, also attended by Attorney General Merrick Garland. The agreement calls on the U.S. and Canada to cooperate, to trace guns seized at the border, to see who purchased them and whether they were used in previous crimes. A Utah judge is considering whether to uphold a law that bans providing abortion services outside of a hospital setting. Sean Higgins with member station KUER. Reports that arguments challenging the law were presented in district court on Friday. Under the law, starting next year, the only place abortions can be performed in Utah is at facilities that are licensed as hospitals. Planned Parenthood Association of Utah and the American Civil Liberties Union claim that violates the state constitution. 
Planned Parenthood attorney Hannah Swanson says that would put undue burdens on clinics. There is absolutely no reason to require abortion providers to turn themselves into hospitals in order to continue providing care as safely as they have been doing for years. Planned Parenthood operates eight Utah clinics. Three are licensed to perform abortions. Judge Andrew Stone says he expects to rule on the case next week. For NPR News, I'm Sean Higgins in Salt Lake City. Tougher abortion bans in Nebraska and South Carolina failed amid heated debates among Republicans this week. In South Carolina, all five women in the state Senate across party lines banded together to block the proposed ban, the third attempt in the state since U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade last summer in Nebraska. An abortion ban after six weeks was defeated by just one vote. And you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. The MBTA says it has pinpointed what went wrong with a crowded Green Line train during the Boston Marathon last week. The T says the floor of the trolley car buckled. The agency said yesterday the metal flooring of the car was misaligned and that caused the buckling. No one was hurt, but the issue shut down service for around an hour. The T says it examined the entire fleet of other trolley cars of the same type and found no indications of similar issues. An effort to restore voting rights to incarcerated felons in Massachusetts is moving forward on Beacon Hill. Somerville State Representative Erica Eiterhoven says her bill will right a wrong after a statewide ballot question was approved, making it illegal for people to vote from prison while serving a felony sentence. She says the law disproportionately affects people of color. When the right to vote was taken away for incarcerated individuals in the year 2000, it disenfranchised 1.5 percent of uh, African-Americans in Massachusetts. A proposal to amend the Constitution through another ballot question cleared the state legislature's Elections Law Committee this week. The measure still needs to clear more legislative hurdles before it could go to voters in 2026. MIT is celebrating the inauguration of its new president today. The university holds a street fair from 2 to 5 this afternoon, featuring rides, activities, food performances, and science demonstrations. Incoming President Sally Kornbluth will be inaugurated this coming Monday. Governor Maura Healey is headed to Washington. She plans to attend the annual White House Correspondents' Dinner tonight. Comedian and Daily Show correspondent Roy Wood Jr. hosts the event. The Bruins lost to the Florida Panthers 7-5 last night, so with the playoff series tied at three games each, a decisive game seven is set for tomorrow night at the Garden. At Fenway last night, the Red Sox lost to the Guardians 5-2. to They meet again this afternoon. At Gillette tonight, the Revs host Cincinnati. It is 50 degrees in Boston with clouds today, a chance of some showers mainly late in the day, and highs reaching the mid-50s. This is 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. You may have heard this before. Federal government hit its legal debt limit in January, $31.4 trillion. This week, House Republicans approved a bill to let the country keep borrowing money, but with strings attached, President Biden says are unacceptable. 
Since 1960, Congress has raised, extended, or revised the debt limit 78 separate times, 49 times under Republican presidents, 29 times under Democratic administrations. Kathleen Day is a business journalist who teaches financial history at Johns Hopkins University's Cary Business School. Professor Day, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. We've had a legal debt ceiling for more than a century. Why? Because Congress uh, is the keeper constitutionally of expenditures. And so when we were spending less money, Congress used to approve every time the government had to borrow money. But then with World War I, they had to do it so often, they just said, enough of this. Let's just give you the authority to do to borrow money up to a certain limit. And so ever after, we've had these debt limits. So the Treasury can borrow up to a certain amount. And then when it hits that amount, it has to go back to Congress and get authorization. You've, you've called the debt ceiling a useful reminder. I think it is. I know that's not a popular thing to say, but I, I do think it's important because borrowing is a serious business. It's just too bad that elected officials um, in politicizing the debt ceiling have started to use it as a wedge to talk about budget cuts when really the time to talk about budget cuts is in the budget process. Do we need to remind ourselves, why is an onerous debt a bad idea? So this goes back to Jefferson and Hamilton. Uh, Jefferson was always worried. He understood the utility of debt. He just under, he also understood the, uh, for him, the bigger worry was the downside if you get in trouble with it. Whereas Hamilton understood that, yeah, there's that downside, so you gotta watch it. But the good that it can do is is required for an industrial uh, growing economy, which he envisioned the United States, correctly, he envisioned the United States would become. So there's good debt and bad debt. Debt is just debt. It's the people that either use it wisely or don't. Yeah. But when the debt is $31.4 trillion, that that's eye-rolling, isn't it? Maybe, but uh, we're an eye-rolling country. We're big. Now, that is about 120% of our economic activity, and that's about two and a half times more than it has been traditionally historically. There's a reason it has gone up, most of it, because of tax cuts. And it's not good to spend more than you anticipate having. So those were unfunded tax cuts, which is really not a smart thing to do. And one of the reasons it's not smart is that you might have an emergency. And in fact, we did. It was called COVID. Is part of the idea of a debt ceiling to focus the mind of people in Congress and, for that matter, the executive branch about reaching a budget agreement? It's to remind people that we're racking up the debt, and it's something that should then be brought up in the budget process. But they're putting the cart before the horse if you bring up uh, budget cuts during the debt ceiling talks. You should use the debt ceiling talks to remind you that during budget talks, you should talk about the debt ceiling. So so where does that leave us now? And I say us, meaning the country as much as Congress. I think the debt ceiling is a reminder, but I think voters got really sick of the government shutdowns that happened when they reached a budget impasse. So every year, Congress has to pass a budget. And so when they couldn't do that because it became very political, the government shut down and voters got sick of that. And I think voters are going to send them the same message eventually is, you know, guys, we sent you there to fix this. Do not default because you know what? Every time they skate close to the edge, it costs taxpayers hundreds of billions of dollars. 
Even without defaulting because the rates go up. Even without actually defaulting, if you start to raise the specter that we could, debt holders of U.S. debt become a little bit anxious that there might be a delay. They demand higher interest rate and compensation for those worries. And then um, it costs taxpayers billions of dollars in money to borrow what they're going to have to borrow. So both sides should sit down, stand up, negotiate with no preconditions? You know, I don't want to prescribe what how they should do it, but it shouldn't be budget cuts for political things. And one of the things that our country is built on is compromise. We have gone to extremes, uh, you know, in our 200-plus year history, but eventually we come back to the middle. People like things to work. Americans are very proud. If, if cultures have characteristics, I do think our culture is one of practicality. People like things to work. And right now, this process is broken broken when you've politicized uh, whether or not we should pay our bills. We have to pay our bills. Kathleen Day, lecturer at Johns Hopkins Business School and author of Broken Bargain, Bankers, Bailouts, and the Struggle to Tame Wall Street. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much. The record number of murders across America are going unsolved. The rate at which murders nationwide were solved or cleared has dropped to around 50%. That's a record low. And several cities have seen the number of murder cases resulting in at least one arrest dip into the low 30% range. NPR's Eric Westervelt has our story. Through 10 years of hard work, Artel Jun Anabo Jr. and his cousin Mark Legaspi turned their uncle's old deli in Oakland's Fruitvale neighborhood into a thriving and much-loved Filipino fast food restaurant called Lucky 3-7. Last May 18th, around 9.45 p.m., as Junanabo Jr. was leaving the restaurant after another long day, someone came up behind him, pulled out a handgun, and shot him. He died at the hospital shortly after. Jun's 11-year-old son, Cousin Legaspi says with a heavy sigh, was right next to his dad when the gunman attacked. He saw everything. I'm just glad he ran the other way instead of following his dad. So you know, because he could have got caught in the line of fire. Worsening the pain for the entire family is the fact that almost a year later, the killer is still out there. Oakland detectives released security cam footage and the license plate number of the suspected getaway car. And the family says they have a potential lead, a man who sold Jun a truck that turned out to be stolen. But so far, no arrests in his cousin's death. In fact, Legaspi says the family feels ghosted by Oakland's homicide detectives. I haven't had any word. I mean, I, I did make try to make a couple calls. I didn't get no answers. I mean, it's, it's almost a year I would like to know something, you know, if there's anything, you know. Even if they didn't do anything, that would be nice to know instead of us hoping. Legaspi's frustration is shared by hundreds of families of murder victims in Oakland and across the country whose cases remain unsolved. Well, I certainly don't believe in anyone getting away with murder. You know, these cases are never closed. We never give up, you know, and I also think that we can only get better. Drennan Lindsay is a deputy chief of police in Oakland. Last year, the city's homicide clearance rate was just 36 percent. If you take out the handful of older cold cases that were solved during 2022, the clearance rate here was just 27 percent. Drennan says too many cases per officer for her 16 detectives and an antiquated case management data system are key reasons behind the painfully low clearance rate. But the biggest one, Lindsay says, is too many people are scared to talk with and help the OPD. 
People don't want to cooperate. People don't want to come to court and testify. And they're afraid of retaliation. They're afraid of being labeled in their communities as a snitch. And we're often left trying to plea and beg for the community to come forward with information to hold this person accountable for committing murder. But that mistrust is also bred by the department's chronic dysfunction. The department remains under federal oversight and has for two decades. And recently, veteran Oakland homicide detective Fong Tran was arrested and arraigned after the local DA accused him of paying a witness thousands of dollars to lie in a murder case that resulted in two men getting life sentences. Detective Tran faces felony charges of perjury and bribery. Those two murder convictions have been tossed out. His attorney calls the charges baseless and lashed out at the DA for treating, quote, murderers like heroes. But the Alameda County DA's office says it is now reviewing at least 125 Oakland murders Detective Tran investigated. Oakland is hardly alone in not solving murders. Nationally, in 2020, the rate at which murders were cleared, which can include solving very old murder cases, hit a historic low. Philip Cook at Duke University studies and writes on the topic. We saw a sharp drop in the national clearance rate in 2020. It reached close to 50% at that time nationwide, which was the lowest ever recorded by the FBI. And it hasn't come up that much since then. The FBI defines a murder cleared if a suspect has been identified and arrested. But a murder can also be declared cleared through what's known as an exceptional means. For example, if a suspect is dead, can't be extradited, or prosecutors refuse to press charges. So even some cities now boasting of improved murder clearance rates are really just playing with the numbers through that exceptional means clause. Cook's research, for example, shows that in Chicago from 2016 to 2020, the percentage of murders with any type of weapon resulting in at least one arrest was just 33 percent. Cook believes the homicide clearance crisis is being driven by a kind of doom loop of mutual mistrust, with low clearance rates undermining future investigations and potentially driving up the murder rate in some minority communities where lack of arrests undermines deterrence. Communities that are especially impacted by gun violence believe that the police are ineffective or indifferent. And as a result, they're less willing to cooperate and provide information the police need to have successful investigations. It is undermining whatever trust there is in the police. And it's a vicious circle. Meantime, back at Oakland's Lucky 3-7 Filipino restaurant, Mark Legaspi says he doesn't blame Oakland detectives per se. They're overworked and overwhelmed, he says, but he wants answers. And so does his murdered cousin's son, now 12, who was, of course, deeply shaken by watching his dad get shot and killed. He's doing good. He's an honor roll. Just got to keep that love with him every, every day, you know? The family plans to honor June with a gathering at the restaurant on the upcoming anniversary of his murder, but they'd rather celebrate a break in his case. Eric Westervelt, NPR News, Oakland. You're listening to NPR News. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 918. And coming up in about five minutes, you'll hear about the upcoming second week of E. Jean Carroll's trial against former President Trump. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Philharmonic Youth Orchestra with Benjamin Zander, performing Mahler's Second Symphony with Chorus Pro Musica at Symphony Hall May 3rd, bostonphil.org. 
Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design, laurenholleran.com. And Grogan and Company, fine art and jewelry auctioneers, whose spring auction weekend is May 6th and 7th. Learn more at grogan.co.com. It's 51 degrees in Boston. Clouds today, highs in the mid-50s, some showers likely tonight, and showers tomorrow with temperatures tomorrow in the upper 50s. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Joel Snyder with these headlines. A manhunt in Texas, a suspect in the killing of five people, including a child, remains at large. Authorities say three people are injured. Police say the suspect opened fire at a home in the small town of Cleveland late last night. Rising temperatures in the west are bringing the threat of flooding due to rapid snow melt. The high water potential has led authorities to close most of California's Yosemite Valley. Rapid snow melt is also a problem along the rising upper Mississippi River. And the U.S. Army is temporarily grounding its aviation units until additional training can be conducted. Two recent Army helicopter collisions have killed a dozen soldiers. The latest accident happened this week in Alaska. I'm Giles Snyder, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Proven Winners Color Choice, offering flowering shrubs. From hydrangeas to lilacs to evergreens, the full collection is at provenwinnerscolorchoice.com NPR. From Eric and Wendy Schmidt, through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Difficult news now. The deadliest Russian airstrikes in months have killed over 20 people, including some children. Most of those who died are in the central city of Uman, where a missile slammed into an apartment building. The attacks come as Ukraine prepares for a counteroffensive to liberate land now occupied by Russian forces. NPR's Ukraine correspondent Joanna Kakissis joins us. Joanna, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me, Scott. I know you went to Oman. Tell us what you saw. So, Scott, imagine a very well-maintained apartment complex with a freshly cut lawn, a garden of blooming red and yellow tulips, and a playground and a school nearby. Like, this is a place for families. And at 4.30 a.m. early Friday morning, when most of these families were sleeping, a Russian cruise missile slammed into one of the apartment buildings. When we arrived, smoke was still billowing from the remains of the building, and uh, the air was thick with the smell of burning plastic. We met Oksana Wojtowska and her sister Ina, who were sobbing as they watched emergency workers walk by with body bags. Oksana told me and my translator, Polina Litvinova, that they were looking for Ina's eight-year-old daughter, Ulya. She's very positive. She's very smiley. She's a blonde-haired girl. She was so positive. Oksana said Ulya was with her father and grandmother on the second floor of the building that was hit. You can see what left from the apartments. Can you imagine the temperature inside when it uh, blew up? It just completely burns. 
So the bodies of Ulya's grandmother and father had already been found, burned so badly that Oksana said that they looked like coal. Uh, she kept holding out hope that Ulya would somehow be found alive. But when we called her last night, she told us Ulya was dead and that her mother recognized the little earrings and necklace on Ulya's body. Oh, my. Bless them all. Any idea why Uman was the target? So that's a good question because Uman is not a big city and it's like 200 miles from the front line. Uman is known as a pilgrimage site for Hasidic Jews. Thousands come here every year to celebrate Rosh Hashanah, even during the war. But Ihor Taburets, who is the regional military administrator here, he said that Russia did target the area around Uman early in the war to hit Ukrainian military installations like an airfield. And Taburets says... Russians may have been trying to hit something military-related again, but that the missile just lost its course. And then he just shook his head and said, with just a lot of anger in his voice, that this seems to happen a lot. He's saying, look, Russians are sending these missiles, each of them massive, and they're hitting our neighborhoods. It's hard for me to see this as anything other than a war crime. So this attack is a reminder once again that no part of Ukraine is safe from Russian missile attacks. And other parts of Ukraine were hit too, weren't they? Yeah, that's right. A missile struck a residential area in another central Ukrainian city, Dnipro, killing a mother and her two-year-old child. Russia's defense ministry, meanwhile, said in a statement that the goal of Friday's attack had been reached. The Kremlin said that it had used these high-precision, long-range missiles in places where, quote, Ukrainian reservists gather. And I should add that the Russians launched 23 missiles on Friday and that Ukraine's armed forces commander says 21 of these were intercepted by air defenses. Ukraine's air defenses have worked really well so far during the war because of ammunition and weapons supplied by the West. NATO says its members are sending most of the promised weapons to Ukraine right now ahead of a planned counteroffensive. But military analysts that we've spoke to told us that they're concerned Russian attacks may try to target these new weapons and instead hit more civilians. NPR's Joanna Kakissis, thanks so much. You're welcome. Writer and advice columnist who says former President Donald Trump raped her nearly 30 years ago has been telling her story in a New York courtroom this week. E. Jean Carroll is suing Donald Trump in civil court for battery and defamation. And Ilya Meritz has been in the courtroom. Ilya, thanks for being with us. Good to be here. I'd like to begin by taking a look at E. Jean Carroll. I, she's a writer whose work I have admired and enjoyed for years. Yeah, E. Jean Carroll is a very compelling figure, and she's led an adventurous life, to borrow her word. She was a beauty queen in Indiana. She came to New York, made a career in magazines, built a profile with her Ask E. Jean column, and she was really at the peak of her success. She had a daytime show on cable TV at the time that she had a chance encounter with Donald Trump, which she said led to him sexually assaulting her. And E. Jean Carroll says that rape occurred in the changing room of uh, the Bergdorf Goodman store in Manhattan. What was she like on the stand? It's been riveting to watch. Here is a 79-year-old woman who gives other people advice for a living, and she kept quiet about her own story for more than a quarter century. So on the stand, she described the alleged rape in graphic detail, but her emotion particularly showed when she was reflecting on the aftermath. She blamed herself for many years for allowing this to happen. She said she hasn't had sex or a romantic relationship since that day. 
flirting ended up as the worst decision of my life, she said, because it was flirting with Donald Trump inside that department store that led her to follow him into the changing room where he allegedly raped her. Do we know if Donald Trump will testify? We don't know. He's on the witness list. At this point, it seems increasingly unlikely. But we do know the jury will see Donald Trump in clips from a recorded deposition. The recording was made last October. And we already know from excerpts that have been written about that Trump mistook Carol for his second wife, Marla Maples, in a photo that was shown to him. So that will be used to rebut his claim that Carol is, in his words, not my type. And how did the cross-examination by Donald Trump's team go? Well, they are treating E. Jean Carroll's story as fiction. Trump's attorney, Joe Tacopina, used the word supposedly in his cross-examination of Carroll. She shot back quickly, not supposedly, I was raped, those are the facts. But there are a lot of gaps in Carroll's story, which Trump's team is pointing out, including the fact that she can't say the date or even the exact year the alleged rape happened. It was 95 or 96, she says. Joe Tacopina has been attacking Carol's character very aggressively, saying Carol made up a story to make money and then raise her profile. And he said she is minimizing true rape victims. She is exploiting their pain and their suffering. And Ilya, what's next in the trial? What are you watching for? The first witness we expect back on the stand Monday is E. Jean Carroll for more cross-examination. One big question is, will the defense keep skating on thin ice with this judge? Even as the trial was getting underway, Trump was posting to social media attacking Carol and her lawyer. The judge warned that there could be additional legal penalties for that. Another thing, Carol is not Trump's only accuser here. Somewhere around 20 women have accused him of sexual misconduct over the years, not in court, but in the press. And two of those women are scheduled to testify under oath in this trial Carol's lawyers are hoping that that will help to show that this alleged rape was not a one-off, but part of a pattern. It's a civil trial, so the standard of evidence here in the assault allegation is preponderance of evidence. It's lower than what's required in a criminal trial. And Pierre Gilles de Marich, thanks so much. You're very welcome. Later today and All Things Considered, Hollywood writers say they're at a breaking point. Negotiators between the Writers Guild of America and the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers will have to either come to an agreement by midnight Monday or face a strike. Key sticking point, residuals. There's no reason for them to replay it on television where I would get that network residual. They're only going to put it on these streamers where I'm going to be making, at best, $700. You know, you're getting checks for $3, $7, $10. It's, it's not enough to put together any sort of consistent lifestyle. You can hear that story listening online at your member station's website at npr.org or by listening on the radio. And now it's time for sports. Star-studded NBA playoffs in the offing. A big star ruminates on success and failure and a major league debut long delayed. Howard Bryant of Meadowlark Media joins us. Howard, thanks for being with us. Good morning, Scott. Wow, but first, that talent-laden Golden State Warriors roster. They're on the brink of elimination. Game seven tomorrow against Sacramento. Uh, What do you look for? Game seven, what can you do except sit back and, and just enjoy an incredible series? And 
it's a, it's a great thing. You've got the Warriors who are the defending champions. They're the dynasty. They're the aging dynasty. Against these kids from Sacramento, light the beam, which yeah. goes up in the sky at the arena every time they win. Who would have thought that they would have lost home court advantage and then come back and destroyed the Warriors in San Francisco last night? So we've got a great series, and it's going to come down to one game it really is scott one of those old cliches where you've got the heart of a champion versus the up-and-coming kids who they they didn't even make the playoffs last year but De'Aaron fox and malik monk and this team has really captured the hearts of uh of that town and boy they are very very good and i i have no prediction of course except for the fact that i will be there that is the one prediction oh. i can make i'll be there oh, to watch okay. uh and rest of the field i'm sorry and the rest of the field and the rest of the field, yeah. Well, the rest of the field's moved on. The rest of the field, we've got Miami and the New York Knicks. What is it, 1999 all over again? We've yeah. got the great, great rivalry of the Celtics and the Sixers resuming once more. You've got, you've got the one seed in the West, Denver, going up against Kevin Durant and the Suns. And then, of course, the Lakers clinched last night. So you yeah. and the, the Lakers well, are awaiting whoever is going to win this Golden State Sacramento game. So it's a it's an unbelievable setup. Stars everywhere, and the NBA must be uh, doing cartwheels because they've gotten everything they've wanted this postseason so far. Yeah, gotta ask you, they sheared the deer. The Mil <laughs> Milwaukee Bucks didn't make the cut, but their big star, Giannis Antetokounmpo had this to say post-game when a reporter, who may now regret his question, asked if losing the series meant the season was a failure. Here's his reply. It's a wrong question. There's no failure in sports. You know, there's good days, bad days. Some days, some days you are able to uh, be successful, some days you're not. Some days it's your turn, some days it's not your turn. And that's what sports is about. You don't always win. Oh, I love that. He also pointed out Michael Jordan won only six championships, so were all those other seasons failures. Yeah, exactly. Does that make you a nine-time failure? I mean, only only Bill Russell can sort of say that. I played a I played thirteen years and won eleven championships. I love what Giannis said, but you also have to you also have to think about what happened to the Bucks this year. They were the best team in the league. They worked really hard to get the one seed. <laughs> you know, you're not supposed to lose to the eight seed. You're not supposed to lose to a team that played in the play-in. I love what Giannis said. Derek Jeter, when I covered the Yankees, used to say this every single season. If we don't win the World Series, then the year is a failure. You hear that all the time in mm. sports, and I love the fact that Giannis brought a little bit of balance to it. But there is also no getting around one thing. Is Giannis Antetokounmpo a failure in life? Absolutely not. But was this season a massive, major disappointment to the Milwaukee Bucks? Also, it really was. It's it's there's sort of no way around that. And also the incredibly sad news that that just came out uh, yesterday, that uh, that the coach Mike Budenholzer's brother was killed in a car crash during that series, and he did not uh, disclose that. And that is oh, very boy. very sad. Um. NHL playoffs, let me just ask you, how is it the invincible Boston Bruins are on the brink of elimination by the Florida Panthers? Um, incredible. Uh, it's stunning. It is going... This is one of the reasons, Scott, we talk about these great, great teams and 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 why, you know, how hard it is to win. You, you go the entire season, you destroy the competition, you win. <laughs> you win 65 games out of 82 games, and now you're... You're playing a winner-take-all tomorrow in Boston. You got to win one game, but if you don't, an incredibly, 
a sad season for the Bruins, and you just can't go down like this. But this is why we watch, and this is why we play the game. Finally, Drew Maggi, Pittsburgh Pirate, made his major league debut. He's 33 years old, 13 years in the minors. I love this story. Amazing story. It's the stuff they make movies of. It's just fantastic. Um, it's <laughs> Hold on to those dreams, man. It's a cliche, but it's true. Yeah, it's wonderful. And he got an ovation. I think, uh, you know, and I hope he has a career, but it was great that he just made it there. Thanks, Howard Bryant of Meadowlark Media. And you're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. This month marks 20 years since Mo Willems published his first picture book, Don't Let the Pigeon Drive the Bus. It has sold more than 6 million copies and received a Caldecott honor. But last weekend, readers got to see and hear... The brand new side of the bossy bird, as NPR's Isabella Gomez Sarmiento reports, the pigeon made his operatic debut at Washington, D.C.'s Kennedy Center. Mo Willems says most of the characters in his children's books are born in an idea garden. He spends years thinking about them, developing them, figuring out the stories they'll be a part of. The pigeon was not that. The pigeon showed up one day while I was trying to write a great picture book this before I'd ever been published, and the pigeon said, don't, don't write this. It's not any good. You should write about me. Don't Let the Pigeon Drive the Bus was about a pigeon, last name pigeon, first name the, who asks, begs, demands to get a chance to drive a bus while the driver's on break. 20 years on, Willems has taken the pigeon to school, to ride a roller coaster, and now to the opera. I know nothing about opera, and that made it really compelling. And then I discovered that opera and picture books are both about very big emotions. Big emotions, like love. Disgust. sadness. The, the performance, titled The Ice Cream Truck is Broken and Other Emotional Arias, premiered last weekend. It was written in collaboration with singer Renee Fleming. Well, we're definitely not used to this laughter. We're not used to laughter at all, really. There are comedies in opera, but they haven't really been in my repertoire so much. Both Willems and Fleming stressed that they really wanted kids and parents to have fun. One way to do that is to address the audience directly. At one point, multiple pigeons ask, So, can we stay up late? I think the most fun thing was when we actually got to sing and tell the pigeon, no, 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 no. That's Betsy Clausen, who attended the show with her nieces. For us to be able to be part of a brand new world premiere opera was very exciting. It could be for everyone, even, even for kids. Carlos Simon composed the pigeon's aria. With classical music, it can be this element of like, I am singing the song, you will not clap, you will not speak, or you will not do anything. You know, these, these rules that have become part of the genre, well, we want to kind of break those down. 
That way, they also got to emphasize the pigeon's persuasive skills, which he's been sharpening for two decades now. I asked Mo Willems if he thinks the pigeon has grown up at all during that time. I like how determined the pigeon is. And I think that maybe I see the pigeon now as more determined than obnoxious. So maybe I'm growing. A sleepy pony, a snoring, snoring, sleepy pony. Isabella Gomez Sarmiento, NPR News, Washington. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. If you are a passenger on the MBTA red line this weekend, then prepare for disruptions. The T is providing shuttle buses instead of train service between the JFK UMass and Kendall MIT stations today and tomorrow. The closure allows crews to replace tracks so trains can eventually pick up speed. Cleveland Circle in Boston has long presented a complicated and treacherous travel picture for drivers, pedestrians, and bikers with its tangled thicket of Chestnut Hill Ave, Com Ave, and Beacon Street, plus MBTA Green Line trolleys. The Boston Transportation Department's looking to create new dedicated bike lanes, crosswalks, and traffic slowing measures. That process moves forward this morning at 10 when city transportation workers and advocates host walks around the area. They're seeking input from people about the mobility challenges they want addressed in Cleveland Circle. It is 51 degrees in Boston with clouds today and highs in the mid-50s. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Serta Pro Painters, professional exterior and interior painting for your home or business. Learn more about their painting services at certapro.com. That's Serta with a C. And Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. PlymouthRock.com slash WBUR. On last week's Wait, Wait, Weird Al Yankovic talked about hiring actor Daniel Radcliffe to play him in a movie about his own life. The first time I saw Harry Potter, uh, I, I thought, you know, someday that guy's got to play me. <laughs> On Peter Sagal, this week we go to Nashville to ask country music legend Brad Paisley what child actor he hopes will grow up to play him. Join us for the news quiz from NPR. Today at 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Staples, with supplies to get business done no matter where it gets done. From ink and toner cartridges to technology like laptops and networking accessories. More at Staples stores or staples.com. From Jarl and Pamela Mohn, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at wtgrantfdn.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Time now for StoryCorps' Military Voices Initiative, recording and sharing the stories of service members and their families. This week, we'll hear from Navy Yeoman Jacob Tate. When Yeoman Tate joined the military in 2010, Don't Ask, Don't Tell, a policy that prohibited openly LGBTQ people from serving was still in effect. He came to StoryCorps with his husband, Carson, to remember. So what was it like basically deciding to take a job where you had to go back in the closet? 
I mean, I think you would use the phrase straight passing. <laughs> and so I just really didn't talk about my life to a lot of people. And I sort of learned to cope with it. So not a walk in the park? Not a walk in the park, but and allowed me to continue to get out of my comfort zone. And God willing, I get to go to sleep and wake up and try it all again. Tomorrow's always a new day. And I'll make it look cute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what was it like dating a civilian who doesn't know anything about the military world? You're a naturally inquisitive person. So when we first started dating, it was fun to answer all of your questions that you had. I like that you had such an interest. Don't worry. Those were only the questions that Google couldn't answer. (laughs) (laughs) You're in the Navy, but what is it that you do? I am a yeoman. What is a yeoman? Think of the yeoman as your friendly HR office. You know, my grandpa was in the Navy. Yeah. When I told him that you were a yeoman, he said, oh, they're the people who you have to be best friends with. They control whether your leave gets counted or not. (laughs) So when... We had been dating maybe six months. Mm-hmm. My dad ended up having a heart attack. Yeah. You had never met my parents before, and you're standing in the hospital with me. What was going through your mind? I just needed to be there for you. I was like, I don't even know where our relationship is going, but I just know right now this is where I need to be and where I'm meant to be. My number one priority was making sure that you were going to be okay. You know... I'm really proud of the fact that we got married because that wasn't something that was always possible. I'm just really proud that I was able to meet a wonderful, caring guy and fall in love with him. We're just always in it together. Avioman Jacob Tate, who's been in the military for 12 years, and Carson Percival in Washington, D.C., the Don't Ask, Don't Tell policy ended in September 2011. Their interviews archived at the American Folklife Center at the U.S. Library of Congress. Chain Gang All-Stars is a novel that drips with blood and violence from the first scene, but also with love. Between Loretta Thurwar and Hurricane Stacks, the two top-rated gladiators of the Chain Gang All-Stars, that's a trademarked enterprise of criminal action penal entertainment. Chain Gang All-Stars is the new novel from Nana Kwame Ajibrenya, the best-selling author of Friday Black, and he joins us now from Eugene, Oregon. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. It's absolutely my pleasure. I often ask a novelist, where'd you get this idea from? But I mean, where did you not get this idea from? (laughs) Right. If you, uh, I mean, if you think closely about the incarceration system and just how willing we are to lock human beings in cages, it's really not hard to imagine all the other ways we might administer inhumane circumstances to people. And so I think this book is really just considering that fundamental idea that we've established pretty clearly, which is if you do bad things, we as a society are allowed to do anything to you. Let's uh, let's try and set the uh, premise here. Prisoners held in private prisons fight in staged, trademarked matches for freedom? For their freedom, eventually. And it's to the death. And so, yeah, it's absolutely sort of this gladiatorial blood sport that has become sort of the hottest craze 
in this imagined America and willing um, convicted wards of the state who are sentenced to at least 25 years can opt out of their sentence and then participate in this sport. This um, particular one called Chain Gang All-Stars, but it's part of a whole maybe constellation of blood sport or criminal action penal entertainment programs in which criminals can participate in these for-profit sort of institutions. And and trademarks uh, are an important feature of the novel, aren't they? They absolutely are. Uh, so many things are commodified. I think for-profit prison should be uh, abomination just to say, but it's actually a thing that we have here in this country. But I think once you go into that for-profit model and also think about the slave labor that the incarcerated people in our country are doing, and I use that word intentionally because we know that slavery is explicitly protected by the Constitution, there's so much profit existing in the carceral space. And I tried to highlight that by using these trademarks and all these companies and businesses that are part of this really dangerous and bloody uh, enterprise. Mm. Your father was a criminal defense attorney? Yeah, that's correct. I'm sure you've reflected on this. How does this nourish what you write about now, do you think? It absolutely does. Uh, I think it's a big part of how I came to writing this book in the first place. When I was really young, I can't remember, I don't know the age, but it was before I was a teenager. I remember hearing for the first time that my father was defending someone who had killed someone. And I remember thinking kind of like, huh, well, I guess my dad's a villain. <laughs> you know, I guess my dad's a bad guy. And I think I expressed some kind of fresh, like confusion. And I remember him telling me it's not that simple. But I think that planted a seed in me, mm -hmm. which years later became this book. But I think for a long time, I've been interrogating this idea that is sort of hard baked in so much of our media, so many of our police procedurals, that there are good people and bad people. And bad people deserve to be punished or bad things happen to them. And I think abolition and this book are really trying to get us to interrogate those ideas and see if we could move towards something a little bit more nuanced and elevated. And I realize you've written a novel, but what should well-meaning people in society do with people who violate the law and hurt other people? It's a really important question. I know the answer is not just torture them more. So I want us to think about our responses to poverty, which is a great precursor for incarceration and people doing so-called crime. I want us to rethink our responses to people in mental health crises. Uh, I want us to rethink our responses to people who suffer from addiction. And those are just some things, but growing a more compassionate response to poverty, to mental health crises and um, substance abuse and building institutions that can do so. I, I've read that you began to become a serious reader when you were working at a shopping mall. I started to understand the quote unquote literary, even though I still don't know what that word even means. Yeah. What the literary space, like I, that's the first time I probably picked up like the Paris review, um, in the Barnes and Nobles above on the fourth floor of the Palisades mall. I would go to McDonald's probably get the highest caloric to lowest <laughs> dollar meal possible at the time. And I got my little 30 minutes McGriddle and a book. It was kind of nice. <laughs> And now you write books. It is kind of nice. One of my first ever book events was in that same Barnes and Nobles. So, oh, what was that like? It was, uh, it was extremely overwhelming. Like my high school teachers were there. I actually found out recently that one of them is, is about to retire. One of my 
really favorite um, English teachers ever, Miss Jacobs. So if you get to read this, hi, Miss Jacobs. Uh, you're a big part of why I'm talking on NPR right now today. My dad was there. He, it was towards the end of his life. So he was there like oh. in his wheelchair and stuff. He had cancer at the time. So uh, it was overwhelming, but pretty uh, I'm grateful for it. It's a great memory. Nanakwame Ajabrenya, his novel, Chain Gang All-Stars. Thank you so much for being with us. And, and thanks to Ms. Jacobs. Thanks to Ms. Jacobs for sure. Thank you so much. It's absolutely my pleasure. For years, the National have captured the sound of Gen X and millennial anxiousness. Cincinnati's band is known for raw and at times searing lyrics, layered over rich, pensive melodies, a sound that recently has been labeled Sad Dad Rock. The National's new album, first two pages of Frankenstein, merges their distinct sound with a star-studded lineup of collaborators, including Taylor Swift, Sufjan Stevens, and Phoebe Bridgers. We asked Matt Bernardo, who was lead singer for The National, about the title of the album, and he says it has more to do with his own creative process than Mary Shelley's. Well, I was struggling to write. Um, I mean, for a long period, I couldn't write at all, and, and nothing was helping. And uh, sometimes I'll just grab a book off the shelf, and, and I, I grab that, and, and um, I just kind of, like, skimmed over words. I'm not even really reading. I'm just, like, I'm just letting my words to, to pop in. And But there was a, some line about tranquilizing something, and then there were these, you know, lines about being in the ocean and in the, in the North Pole. And, and so tranquilize the oceans between the poles was just the first line I wrote. And that was like, oh, yeah, that's, that's kind of the, what I wanted to do to my brain, I think, a little bit. And so it triggered a song called Your Mind Is Not Your Friend. Don't you understand? Your mind is not your friend again. It takes you by the head. The song is one of several collaborations on the album. This one with Phoebe Bridgers. But your mind is not your friend is something that my wife was reminding me and telling me in the lowest moments where I just thought, you know, I was never going to be able to write again. Um, and I was convinced, you know, that I couldn't go on stage again. And she was the one who kept saying, this is just, this is just your mind telling you that it's not the truth. And which is, it really helped. It was like, oh yeah, it's not me. It's my mind. Cause I, I don't think you can always trust your own mind. You know, your thoughts don't always lead you, uh, or aren't really pointing to the truth a lot of the time. But how does an artist not trust their mind when so much art depends on feeling, instinct, and judgment? How you tapped on a box of blue American spears at Anyway Cafe, a little under a month before. I've always written about not being able to communicate. And and I've always written about depression, and I've written about all these things that uh, that I was in the middle of, I, I think I just, I reached points like I didn't want to self-reflect. I didn't want to look in the mirror anymore. I was, I was disgusted by it all. And I was, had a little bit in my mind that maybe I have, maybe by dwelling, writing, you know, nine records or eight records, um, 
about you know sorrow and heartbreak and all my problems maybe i've created this situation and uh i, I was like well maybe I, I broke myself but eventually eventually i just i i had to crack into that again because that was the only way you know, the only way to get out of it is to sort of take a deep dive into it. And he seems utterly comfortable with exploring that sadness, not putting on some other face for the world. The stuff I connect to is the stuff that is, is like it makes me want to talk about things that I don't normally talk about or wouldn't otherwise. And so I, I don't go into anything like with an idea of like making a sad or happy or angry song. Anytime I've tried to like, let's write a happy song, it's not, I can't do it. It doesn't do anything for me, you know? So I think I'm always trying to write self-medicating music for myself, yeah. Matt Berniner and his bandmates created a playlist on Spotify called Sad Dads label bestowed on them by their fans. I mean, we, we, we've been hearing that for a long time, and and so eventually we just decided to kind of embrace it. There was either that or brunch core. <laughs> We're all dads, uh, and, and uh, we've all struggled with all that kind of stuff. So, But I, I think that the truth is being a dad was, throughout this phase, was was the the. the the one thing that that was like, oh, you know, I'm good at that. That's what I'm really good at. And boy, he did get some cool dad points for his collaboration with Taylor Swift on a song called The Alcott. I had to do something to break into your golden thinking. <laughs> I think our kids have always loved what we do and, and are always in and out of the studio and always have been, you know, a part of the fabric. Um, but collaborating with, with Taylor and Phoebe did add some, some check marks to, to the whole thing, you know. It's the first thing you do. Give me some tips to forget you. You tell me your problems. My daughter was telling me that, you know, friends in school, some of them were national fans, you know, and this was before any of the Taylor Swift stuff. And I just assumed it was, you know, that her moms or dads that were playing it around the house. Now there's a whole different sort of set of eyes on us. Well, writing with Phoebe Bridgers and Taylor Swift makes for some high-profile duets. Matt Berninger says that he's really learned about co-writing lyrics from his wife, Corinne Besser. They've had to set some rules to make their artistic collaboration work. With the Alcott was, was I was writing about my wife and I was writing about her, her magical thinking and her, you know, her writing in her golden notebook and how we very, very tentatively approach each other with our art sometimes and, and how it can be tricky to share, you know, really personal art about someone with that person. You know, and my wife always, and I, we always, when people ask us that, we always kind of say the same thing that, uh, that is incredibly rewarding, but also dangerous and tricky. And my wife and I have a, have a you know a policy of kind of the art comes first, and then and then we'll talk about it later. You know, Matt Berniner, frontman for the National, the band's new album, first two pages, Frankenstein, out now. And the last thing you is the first thing I do. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Rice University, 
where challenging convention, exploring new ideas, and making a positive impact is central to how they define unconventional wisdom. More at unconventional.rice.edu. And from the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. This is NPR. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Next at 10 o'clock, it's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me here on 90.9 WBUR. Wherever you might be, you can keep up with WBUR with the new WBUR app. Tap and listen when and how you want. Download it or update it in your app store now. It's 51 degrees in Boston with clouds today and highs in the mid-50s. Some showers likely tonight, lows in the mid-40s overnight. Showers tomorrow, Sunday's highs in the upper 50s. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by BMW. The BMW i4 has a range of up to 301 miles. It's 100% electric and 100% BMW. A Judy Bloom classic is finally coming to the big screen. Hey there, God. It's me, Margaret. I'm a little nervous, actually, about being alone, so... Can you just not let anything really horrible happen? I'm Sarah McCammon, and we'll be talking to Abby Ryder Fortson about what it was like to play the title character in this iconic story of a girl's coming of age. That's on the next All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 5 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.